Welcome to the Med Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, podcast listeners. Today, we have another episode in our podcast founder series, where we invite kick-ass entrepreneurs to chat about their experiences from the front lines of starting a company. We cover everything from newly minted startups still struggling to make it out of their garage, all the way to the elusive unicorns that are either transforming traditional business sectors with innovative ideas or creating entirely new ones through cutting edge technologies. Either way, the result will be total catastrophic failure and bankruptcy or hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue and a valuation worth north of a billion dollars. Listen in to hear the tales of blood, sweat, and tears as these founders try to change the world. As a disclosure reminder, I've invested in most, if not all of these startups, and will look to invest more as they continue their startup journey. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. A typical day in the life of a financial advisor calls for back-to-back client meetings, juggling portfolio management, and the consistent desire to improve client relationships. YCharts report and proposal tools could be the missing piece to help you effectively handle these time-consuming tasks. Now more than ever, clients want to hear from their advisors and with user-friendly templates at your disposal, generating impactful client reports can be easily integrated into your everyday routine, helping you free up time and focus on what matters most, enhancing client interactions and growing AUM. Need to make a clear head-to-head comparison between a client's existing portfolio and your proposed one? Want a seamless way to educate your client and present market trends with minimal effort? Join thousands of users who rely on YCharts to easily answer those questions and much more by leveraging personalized proposal reports to truly showcase your value add. Click the link in the show notes to learn what others are saying about YCharts' comprehensive suite of reporting and proposal generation tools. Get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial. Click the link in the show notes or tell them Meb sent you for new customers only. Please enjoy the next episode in our founder series. What's up, friends? We're back with the first of many episodes in our startup series. We're kicking it off with a bang. Our guest today is the co-founder of Free Trade, whose mission is to get everyone investing by making it simple and commission-free with the stockbroker you can trust. In today's show, we start with our guest's early days at Google, and then we hear how he went all in on a crowdfunding campaign for Free Trade. Loved the product so much, he joined the company as a co-founder. Then we dive into the company, which offers commission-free brokerage, but without payment for order flow or margin lending costs. Our guest shares how the company does make money, what the appetite for his product has been like in Europe, and what it was like to navigate the craziness of 2021. As we wind down, we hear about Free Trade's crowdfunding experience with seven total rounds, raising roughly 60 million bucks. That's a special offer for listeners of the show who are across the pond, Visit freetrade.io slash meb and get a free stock worth three to 200 euros. Again, that's freetrade.io slash meb. Please enjoy this episode with Free Trade's Victor Nebahoy. Victor, welcome to the show. Meb, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Where do we find you today? You know, a very hot high-rise flat in London, the UK. I miss London. Last time I was there, we held a meetup and a couple great pubs as you want to do in London town. And the vibe at the time was all about Brexit and nobody knew anything from anyone else. They were all confused. There seemed to be no, <laughs> no, no outcome. What's the vibe like in the UK right now? Well, it's all about the pandemic and the lockdown now. For regarding Brexit, I think you're marginally less confused, but I think a lot of that still remains. I mean, it definitely impacted our industry, finance, but Yes, the pandemic totally overrode that and been under very serious lockdown since basically March, a little bit of episodic easing in the summer. But since November, like everyone was at home, you could not go anywhere. So yeah, that's the vibe. It's opening up now. So you would see people hanging out in like big stores. Everyone's fed up with the lockdown. People are going to pubs, lots of people on the streets. 
little bit Mediterranean vibe because it's like 96 degrees Celsius here. Yeah. You didn't always get your start in London. I think the circuitous path involved a little bit of Eastern Europe as well as some time at the Googleplex before starting free trade. Give us the quick uh, origin story, how you ended up where you are. Eastern Europe indeed. So I was born in Hungary. That was part of the Eastern Bloc when I was born. 1979, if you believe that. <laughs> that was a long time ago. And I actually spent my first 10 years under communism. So I have very vivid memories. I was even a pioneer, which is kind of like a Boy Scout, but Soviet style. Then the whole thing came crashing down, which is a pretty tremendous experience, to be honest. And then the 90s, big societal upheaval, kind of like everyone was kind of poor, like just reflecting back on it. I would not even know what investing was, no, my family or anything like that. Entrepreneurship was very much uh, primordial. No one really was doing that a little bit, maybe. 2004, we joined the EU. So that's when I finished university. And it was a really interesting situation because you could go and work in any of three countries, the United Kingdom, Ireland, or Sweden. These were the first countries. And now you can work without permission basically in any EU country. But I was like, that's fantastic. I really like Ireland. I want to spend maybe a year abroad. That turned into like 15 later. <laughs> and I was really interested in tech. So all my peers at the university, they wanted to go into banks. It was all about finance. And that's where they ended up. And I was like, this whole internet thing is really awesome. Maybe I can do something related. So I discovered that a lesser known tech company, lesser known by European standards called Google, opened an office in Dublin. So I applied, I had maybe like 10 interviews at the time. It was um, pretty unstructured. And then they hired me. So I basically packed all my belongings into a duffel bag, everything fit. And then I flew to Dublin. That was my first time there. And I joined Google and I basically spent seven years there. I built my career there and I had a great time. So that's why I got my start. It was really interesting because all my peers that ended up working with banks, we know what happened in 2008. So that was a really interesting time. Google obviously did really well. And then after then, I felt after seven years, I still have had a lot to learn, but my learning plateaued. I went to Asia. I lived there for a while. I did an MBA, came back to London, sorry, to Europe, and then to London for personal reasons. And I was kind of unemployed. I guess you can say that. I mean, consulting and whatnot. But then I saw an advertisement on the two. That was the platform CrowdCube, which is equity crowdfunding. So I was like, this is fantastic. You can invest like basically any amount. You don't have to have hundreds of thousands of pounds to invest in a startup. You don't have to have your own solicitor. You can basically go ahead and put money in a startup and the platform takes care of everything. So I invested in the very first crowdfunding round of Monzo, the very first crowdfunding round of Revolut, which is probably a little bit more familiar for your US audience. Monzo is more like, I guess, a Chime type of neobank. And my third investment was the most important, which was free trade. That was the first crowdfunding round that now my co-founder and CEO, Adam, did basically put a pitch deck together, put it on Crowdcube. And I was like, this is fantastic. I moved to the UK. I thought it would be a very sophisticated financial market. I was looking for, to be honest, for a local equivalent of Robinhood. We all have this generational experience of having been on the bait list, only later figuring out it's only for a US customer base. So I was like, this is fantastic. And I basically looked across all my bank accounts across Ireland, Hong Kong, where I lived as well, all my money into the UK and I invested everything I had. So I was left maybe with like 15 pounds until the end of the month. Thankfully, my girlfriend was employed. So I wasn't at, <laughs> at risk of becoming homeless, but basically I put all the money I had into free trade. Then Adam reached out to me or I reached out to him. I can't remember, but we hit it off. I really liked him. And one thing led to another and I joined him to build free trade as his marketing guy originally. So yeah, that was quite a journey. I love the concept of finding this product, investing, and then, and then liking it so much you decide to join the actual company. What year was this kind of when you started doing the investing as far as the timeline for the crowdfunding? 2016, the summer of 2016 was very hot when it comes to crowdfunding. That's when kind of like really large fintechs crowdfunded in London. And I joined Pre-Trade basically Adam, in 2017. Okay, so within the last five years. All right, so 
We'll come back to crowdfunding later because I'm a little curious what the state of affairs there is now. But tell us what free trade is. Like, what do you see about this concept and idea that really got you excited? Yeah, free trade is a commission-free brokerage. So we provide stocks, UK and American stocks as well, and ETFs, and people can invest commission-free. We have all the local accounts you can wish for in the UK. We have an ISA account, which is probably similar to maybe a 401k or a Roth IRA type of uh, tax shelter account in the US. We charge a flat three pounds per month for that. And we have self-invested personal pensions, which is basically what's on the team. It's a pension account and you choose to invest your own pension, which is a fantastic structure as well. It comes with some tax relief as well. So that's what we provide. And we continuously develop the product. And in the coming months, we are expanding into Sweden as our first international market and then the rest of Europe later this year. So talk to me a little bit about, we'll get into kind of brokerages in general, but there tends to be, at least in my understanding, some fairly stark differences between what the investing landscape looks like in Europe than in the US, and then forget about other countries too. I mean, I often will complain ad nauseum about costs in the US and then my friends from Canada or Japan or wherever would be like, dude, you haven't seen anything. <laughs> you know, these, some of these are uh, South America. They're like, you're complaining about some of these costs, my God. So tell me a little bit about kind of just the general European market. And then uh, we can kind of dive down specifically a little more what you guys are doing and how things are structured. Yeah, absolutely. As a starting point, investing in Europe historically was not really mainstream. Per se, it's more part of the culture in the US. And culturally, I think Americans are more willing to take some risks and willing to lose some capital. Europeans tend to be more risk averse culturally. So there is that kind of backdrop. However, around like five years ago with free trade, we had this vision that an investing account is going to be almost as mainstream as having a bank account, a checking account, really normal. And the reason we believe that was just where the world has been heading. So some of your guests can explain this even better than me, but it's like there is not many places where you can put your money. Basically, how interest rates and inflation looks like, you are basically, up until very recently, you are paid a premium just being long on equities. And that's where the growth is. And that's where the growth is coming from. Virtually all of it, companies innovating, becoming more effective, inventing things. And... In terms of the market in Europe, it was not really easy to invest. Some of the incumbents in the UK, they are really expensive. And that's typical in the European market as well. You would pay for one transaction, something like £12. That's probably $15, $16, if my mental math is correct. Maybe even more, depending where the exchange rate is. It's really expensive. And that's been the norm up until very recently. And that's been the norm in basically almost any other virtually all European markets, very, very expensive. Same in Japan and Canada, like you would hear from your friends. But but we thought that there is a generational change. So people need to do something with their money. There is money in Europe. So there are really developed rich countries and basically a hundred million people market. And they need to find a way to put that money to work. So that's been our thesis. Our thesis was that we are basically at the recipes of all this change and we can be a company that drives this change and is at the focal point of this change. Saving accounts and all that stuff, that's the stuff of history for us. You will not really receive any meaningful return. We are talking like literally 0.01% kind of return that you would get with some savings accounts. When you guys got started, the name is pretty clear. Was this the sort of state of affairs where you guys were the totally new only entrant in this world of sort of commission-free? Was it something where everyone's doing it now? How was the sort of progression of what you guys launched and the uptake of it? When we launched, we were basically the only ones doing this. And it's becoming more and more mainstream, not quite with the incumbents, but we see kind of like small upstarts popping up, offering ESG, focused ETFs for commission fee or having like topical focuses. So it's becoming more mainstream. But when we started, it's almost like borderline. We're not taken seriously. People just would not believe that people will actually invest 
but we have almost 800,000 signed up users right now. So close to a million. So I guess the story is developing our way. So the interesting idea in my mind too, is that the environment, and you can correct me, US stock market has been in somewhat of a romping, stomping bull for the past decade, for the most part. You've had some jiggles in the interim, but for the most part, largely outperforming other markets. UK hasn't really been that sort of experience. So are most of your investors investing locally? Are they investing globally? Are they all trading US stocks? What's the sort of composition? That's actually a very interesting question because yes, like you said, US market romping and stomping. That's And it's incredible how popular US stocks are across Europe. You would maybe expect that European countries, maybe German people would be interested in like French stocks, but based on our survey and data, that's not necessarily the case. What we do see is home market bias. So about 50% of our customer base, 50% of their investment on average is in local UK investments, UK stocks, the other 50% in US. And they just have this connection with local companies that they, whose products they use every day. That's our thesis. That's why they invest. And, you know, there are some success stories in the UK. The FTSE 100 is not necessarily a success story itself. I mean, recently it's been doing actually quite okay, but historically it's not an amazing outstanding investment. But there are some companies that are unknown gems in the UK and local people actually understand which ones tend to be higher performing companies. So kind of get into the meat of the discussion now, thinking about what you guys do. Talk to me a little bit about your business model, how a brokerage like Free Trade is structured in your jurisdiction versus the typical, and then we can branch off into all sorts of different offshoots from that. So something very important to understand when it comes to the European markets, that capital markets are not as competitive as in the US, which means that everything is more expensive. Like running a type of business like free trade in the US would be much cheaper. And early on, we figured out that the best way to decrease our costs is going direct to the source and connect to the plumbing of the capital markets more directly. So something we invested early on was our invest platform, which is our own clearing engine. And it basically does the brokerage heavy lifting, which means that we are not relying on a third party when it comes to core brokerage activities. But it took one and a half years and 10 engineers to develop it. I mean, it's still, it's like incredible. I mean, heads up to the team. It's just, it meant that it's a trade-off. We could not deliver new features until that was done. So we had to do this like large upfront investment to really get started. And before that, actually, we always called ourselves free trade, but actually the instant order was one pound before we introduced our own platform to cover our costs. So now the trades are commission-free. And in terms of our business model, we make the bulk of our revenue currently from FX. So when all our customers are in the UK, they have sterling-based accounts. When they buy a US stocks, then we exchange their currency from sterling to US dollars. So we charge a modest 45 bips on that. And that's part of our revenue, but we don't want to depend on that. So we have multiple revenue sources. The second one is subscriptions. So I mentioned the ISO account, which is a tax shelter investment account, tax efficient. That's three pounds per month. And we really love the kind of like how high quality this like monthly re- recurring revenue is. It's really with the FX that goes up and down, depending on there is a big meltdown in the US markets. We see our customers investing a lot more than prices greater, but that varies. Subscriptions where it's at for us. And the other source of revenue, which is currently not really resulting in a lot of money would be interest on invested cash of our customers. But the Bank of England decides how high the interest rate is. And it's not very high right now. Yeah. I mean, if you look at historical brokerage like Charles Schwab, and you can correct me because I'm sure you know more than I do, but ballpark, if I recall, it's like half from that interest spread and then all the various other things kind of mixed in versus a more in the news competitor like a Robinhood, which gets it largely from payment for order flow and kind of margin lending. Are those two categories you guys implement as well? Or those categories that I think, is, correct me if I'm wrong, the Europe, is payment for order flow straight up illegal or not allowed? 
It is. That's our interpretation of the rules that it's illegal to do payment for order flow. We reached out to the regulator as well to get a better interpretation and clarification of the rule. We are actually not allowed to do that, but we also don't find that that business model is actually something that we would ever want to introduce on our customers. We disagree with the philosophy behind that. We think there are conflicting interests when it comes to people. And in terms of margin lending, so early on, we decided that we want to create a product that's healthy for our customers. Our goal is to help them create a healthy long-term investing habit, as opposed to chime in, bet on the meme stocks, kind of like gambling type of behavior. That's not something we want. So we decided not to do margin lending at all, because we consider it something that only very sophisticated people should use. And free trade is not the best for that. So we decided that we will never implement margin. So does that mean people can't trade uh, options? They can't trade options. I've been very vocally critical of Robinhood. And I spend a lot of time trying to reflect and say, look, I think a lot of these companies, and I'll put acorns in the same bucket. I say a lot of companies, I reserve the right to be wrong. And it's complicated because in some way, it brings a lot of investors that may not have entered the investing world into the investing world, but also it enters them, in my opinion, through the wrong door, meaning they learn all the wrong lessons and get incentivized to do all the bad things. Now, maybe they'll sort of graduate from that experience with a lot of scars and understanding of how sort of the world works, but also the gold standard in the US, I consider to be Vanguard. In a world where you could invest in Vanguard, it would have been nice just to go there in the first place excluding obviously what we're doing. And so the problem I always have is driven so much by incentives. And we say, look, if your broker is incentivizing you to do all these bad behaviors, you probably need a new broker or you need a new partner. It's the same in life. You know, if your friends or family members are leading you towards the path that you don't want to be on, it's a hard decision to make. But the reality is that you probably need to reflect and just get a different kid <laughs> to get a different partner. Absolutely. I imagine you have a fair amount of perspective on the past year in markets and what's been going on. I mean, I thought 2020 was a particularly crazy time. And then 2021 just rolls in and says, you haven't seen nothing yet, particularly with a lot of the interest in the Wall Street bets community and others on meme stocks. The struggle I have so much is that the media, there's so many competing narratives, many of which are misleading and wrong. And so it's good to have someone like yourself who knows a lot more about the guts of what's going on. What's been your general perspective on the past year? I'll let you take that in any direction you want, but there's been certainly a lot going on. All right. I hope you have time. <laughs> that was a people's old year. And I mean, let's also reflect on what kind of incentives the media has when they narrate what happened in the past 12 months plus. They are going to focus on kind of like the most riveting, most crazy stuff and take it out of proportion. I'm not saying that what happened with the meme stock is not significant and dramatic as well, but I would put it in perspective. So the pandemic and what it caused, it basically blasted us forward maybe like a decade easily in various ways. Like in the UK, I mean, e-commerce was already very developed, but I mean, now for everyone, it's pretty normal to order groceries, order food via their apps. And it absolutely had an impact on people starting to invest. And we looked into that. We talked to our customers all the time. We sent surveys. We have a user research team as well, talking to them. And basically what happened in our findings was that, well, people ended up with a quite a bit of free time and quite a bit of money. You don't commute, you don't spend on food outside. And investing is something that's been on the to-do list of a lot of people to learn about. And honestly, a lot of people were bored as well. So that's kind of like the genesis of where that kind of like really large uptick in investing. That's how it looked like. And the media kind of took it in a certain direction and focused on certain narratives. But whenever we survey our customer base, and that's a really significant sample, significant population, I would say. We find that most people are reasonable. They are focusing on pound cost averaging, dollar cost averaging type of behavior every month. They invest in ETFs. They have their conviction bets like 
people love their green energy companies or kind of like the convictions they have about the future. And yes, like some people invest in meme stocks and they definitely buy into the narratives they see on Reddit. But we find that's the law of minority. But that's what really gets the limelight when it comes to narrating the past year. And that's not what we see. We also run our own online community forum, which we moderate. I think with Reddit, the kind of trouble is that it can be taken in lots of very wild, very cowboy directions. And we as a company, we are authorized and regulated by the FCA, the local regulator. So every material that we put out, a website, an online forum, it's object to certain standards and expectations. So we moderate giving like a straight up investment recommendation. You can do that. You can provide the target price. It's very important when it comes to the online community that you kind of like monitor and moderate it correctly. So diverse thoughts kind of like get shared as opposed to kind of like people hyping each other up. The other aspect of what happened and meme stock as well, we actually really love the democratization that went down. It is actually absolutely in mission for us. We want everybody to have access to investing and everybody to develop this healthy habit. And in a way, what happened in January, for example, it's like pouring fuel on the fire. It's a trend that's already been going on. With the meme stock, it got a lot more exposure. And as a result, a lot more people can get into this healthy habit. But yeah, there is that small minority that gambles. And, you know, that's kind of human behavior. Some people, you know, want that. They enjoy the adrenaline. They post their lost porn on Reddit. Some people go into that knowingly in an informed way. Fine. There are people who like going to a casino, kind of like putting everything on red. That's fine. We should not regulate that. But I think the media focused very much on that. We've also seen a lot of conspiracy theories, of course, like everyone else. It's like, it's very important to communicate transparently and giving a really good account of what's happening because the brokerage, like the technical aspect of running a brokerage is actually quite arcane and complex. And it's like a really good soil to like see conspiracy theories, which are not really helpful for a society, I don't think. I think an informed society is, is much better. But yeah, all in all, it's been an incredible year for us and we gained a lot of customers and most of them invest very sensibly. That would be my summary. I think a lot of the narratives got parts of the discussion wrong when Robinhood and others had to kind of shut down and pause. Was that something you guys had to experience too? I imagine there was a pretty large uptick in interest and demand from retail investors wanting to set up accounts and trade. Did you guys go through the same experience or if not, what was it like? We went through very wild experiences. So we did not go through this without having to shut down the market temporarily for a little bit. It was actually really wild because I went on Sky TV live news, I think on a Friday morning on January. And I was saying things like that we absolutely believe and we absolutely do, which is we are on the side of the retail investor. We are not going to shut down the market arbitrarily. And I finished the interview. I opened work, you know, Slack. And I get a message from our VP of product that, hey, our FX provider that helps us providing the FX exchange, they just told us that they have to limit our bandwidth by 90%. So they want to kind of like put us back to where we were like, I don't know, 12 months ago. So I was like, what? Where is this coming from? And it was a really intense day because I made these statements. We all, as a company, have been making these statements. And we ended up having to shut down buys that day of US stocks. And we had to explain that to our customers. And, and the path we chose was like kind of navigating this kind of like very narrow space of not badmousing your partners. We thought it was fair for them to be able to explain themselves and for us all to take time to understand why we were limited that much, but also like very transparently going to our community, to our customers and saying that, well, we have to do this. This is caused by our FX partner. And this is the logic. This is our guiding principle, which is treat customers fairly. It's a principle that the FCA demands us to follow, but it's also something that we innately follow. We want to treat our customers fairly always. And we felt blocking buys and prioritizing sales. So you were able to get out of a position if you wanted to. It was just the right sort of trade-off for us. But it was a very tough sort of thing to manage. And we had a lot of Twitter messages. Um, I still have probably like hundreds of hundred Twitter DMs 
from various random people who wanted this to stop, who were telling me their version of the conspiracy theory, that sort of stuff. But all in all, we managed to communicate transparently and get through this together with the team. And then we spent the whole weekend implementing the technological solution for the FX limitation. Our engineers implemented a way to batch FX orders. So on Monday, we were able to open. We were open for business again. But yeah, that was a very intense weekend for sure. I think part of the challenge, everything comes down to structure. I think the concept of payment for order flow, short lending revenue, it's unclear to a customer how traditionally brokerages make money on all these different routes. And the cool thing, potentially, and I haven't used y'all's service, but this concept of the subscription model allows you to kind of take a step back. And I think of the same way as a RIA or a fiduciary in the US where you're by law supposed to work in the customer's best interest and to really take out all the stops. And so I was saying on Twitter numerous times and feel free to comment. I said, look, if you're going to do payment for order flow, if you're going to do short lending, like we do on the institutional level, we give it all back. I was like, why not set it up where kind of like what you guys do, but say, look, we'll at least share it with the customer. Say like, we'll give you half, which some brokerages I think do on the short lending. I don't know any that do on the payment for order flow, but it has this, it's like a whole totally different mindset of if you had two Venn diagrams, one is every decision is driven by, is this in the customer's best interest and can we still stay in business? And on the other is like, how much money can we make from this person? And it's like everything is influenced after that initial cultural sort of mindset. Does that make any sense? Got any thoughts? Well, absolutely. You use the word structure, which I think is very important because you want to set up your business in a way that is structured. People are incentivized to do things in the best interest of customers. Like historically, personally, I guess all of us have been used and abused by financial services companies in the past. That is definitely how I feel the way I feel about many of the financial services firms I've been customers of. And that's the promise of fintech. With the commoditization of technology, we are able to build new generation companies that prioritize customers, that put customer interests first and foremost. And that's a very easy thing to say. The meat of it is really structuring your company and setting incentives so that everything that you do is aligned according to the best interest of the customer. That's why subscription, for example, that is the best source of revenue for us. So we actually have a premium account called Plus, where you get an extended stock universe and different order types like limit orders, stop losses, and that's £10 per month. And we continuously develop that account. We are adding more and more features because we want to build something that people feel is worth paying for. And once we have that, that's really high quality revenue, that's monthly recurring revenue or yearly recurring revenue even with a discount, that's fantastic because we are incentivized to work for the customer, make the account better. We work hard to make sure we retain those customers and they continuously find value in that account type. That's really what we focus on. And it's not like we don't want to diversify our revenue sources. You always want to stand on multiple legs. So we are looking at stock lending as well. And... Our CEO, Adam, he's ridiculously customer-oriented. So his thinking is, like from the get-go, can we find a way, at least for our Plus members, to share that revenue with them and make it opt-in or something like that? We want to have that revenue. And like, absolutely, we just want to do it in a way that we are incentivized to get it the right way, if that makes sense, in a way that we don't harm our customers. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about what you guys have learned. You've been doing this for five years, and I imagine you said almost a million customers. So you've probably had every possible customer interaction 10 times over. But as far as best practices on design, some of the conclusions often are not necessarily intuitive. The example I used to talk about was on like notifications for a client. Some groups want a ton of education and input and others are like, wait, I should be worried about market volatility. Like I wasn't even looking at my account. Now you tell me I should be looking, you know, so what have you guys learned over the last five uh, years? Things you did wrong, things that you think have been useful? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there have been a number of things that we did wrong and a number of things we actually managed to blast out of water. And both of them are great sources of learning. And 
Yeah, like you said, every sort of customer interaction 10 times over, one of the sort of learnings is a little bit unusual. And I think your US audience might find it like really, really unusual is just the power of crowdfunding, which is like our original growth loop was, and every company wants to have a growth loop. You want to have a way to kind of like a feedback loop of how you develop your devoted customer base. We actually made them shareholders in the company, which was made possible by how well it's structured in the UK. I understand in the US until maybe a couple of years ago, you had to be like a high network individual to invest in these kind of raises, but it's fairly normal in the UK. You get even like tax cuts when you invest in startups. Like as a retail investor, you get 30% off, 50% off in the form of tax relief if you invest in, in startups. So we leaned into that. And then that was the seed of our community. And, and we learned like how important that community is because you want people advocating for you, even though it's ridiculously hard to build a brokerage, it turns out <laughs> fine. We sort of knew, but an outcome of that is that when we get started, we have to prioritize what feature, what design we choose to go with. And we started with a very low-cost uh, version, no pun intended, of the app, very simple. And it was very useful to have these community of people who were very forgiving and gave us a chance and gave us product feedback, like very direct product feedback. When it comes to design and the push notifications that you mentioned, what we always learn is like only bother people with value that you create for them. Like a lot of times companies' mindset is like, oh, I need to reach this objective. I want to make revenue. And that sort of filters into what they do and what kind of push notifications they send and how they design the product. I mean, you want to optimize, but you always have to keep in mind, like, am I creating value for my customer? The way I'm reaching them, is it like a type of communication that they actually derive value from? So that's very important. And we invested a lot in like education as well, like you referred to, but yeah, people are different and not everyone necessarily wants kind of like blog post type of content in the app about what an ETF is. So what we learned is, and that's something we want to do better in the future is like, you want to understand your customers really, really well. You want to build a CRM uh, system that classifies your customer exactly. There are people who just like start out investing. They try with 20 pounds. That's fairly different from the person who transfers their 100,000 pound portfolio and they exactly know what they are doing. These are different customers and we want to understand them better going forward and create different experiences for them. So yeah, that's definitely something we learned. A lot of my early days beliefs about investing have changed over the years. One of the which is sort of this concept of illiquidity or nudges to keep you from yourself. The challenge of whether it's over trading or mucking around with an investing plan based on emotions and what the markets are doing. Let's talk a little bit about the future. You guys been at it for half a decade. You got another long runway to go as we look out on the horizon in the 2020s. What's on the to-do list? A lot is on the to-do list. The main thing is making free trade truly global. So it's like great to be in the UK. It's a great business. We definitely see ourselves on a trajectory to achieve great outcomes as a company. But really, the mission is to get everyone investing. And that means everyone. So what will define the next half a decade or entire decade is going into these different countries and going the right way. So we use Sweden as sort of a learning ground to learn internationalizations the right way. We want to make the app fairly local. We already see that making it like fully, absolutely local is very, very difficult and challenging. So we have to do trade-offs. But that's what's going to define the future. It's not just Sweden, but using those learnings going into the other EU countries as well. And then eventually go into countries like Australia, where we already established a small engineering team. And they are working on a secret project, a feature that hopefully we'll be able to announce soon. And we want to go to Asia and we want to go to North America as well. So that's what's going to define the next decade. And that's like way bigger than any individual feature. The most important thing is that we remain structured the same way, which is our incentives are aligned with our customers' outcome. That's the most important thing. And getting to scalability globally, that's the future for us. As we look at sort of the future of retail investing, and by the way, I was trying to see if you guys had freetrade.com. You guys own that domain or somebody else got it? <laughs> oh, somebody else got it. 
an American brokerage actually, but they don't use it. Ah, uh, well, if you're listening, you and freetrade.com, reach out. Victor may have an offer for you of uh, a six pack of pints of British beer and some uh, lagers. <laughs> yeah, some lagers. So, what other trends are taking shape on the con? Like, do you think? The culture of traditionally opaque, higher fees. Like, is there a groundswell of support? Because often I'll travel to other countries and am consistently surprised at the lack of disruption that's happening still. Is it something that you think is, are you seeing other fractures and changes in the entire ecosystem? Or is it sort of early days? Because in the US, it's like, I feel like it's extremely competitive. But what else? So... We think it's going to be very competitive everywhere else as well. We are already seeing disruption happening in Europe, and we are one of the leaders of that. But it's still somewhat early days. There are markets that are huge, and still there is not a lot of disruption. If you consider Spain, for example, that's a really large European market, or even Italy, and there is nothing there. So we are hoping, and what we are planning for, is that we are going to be the company that leads the disruption there. But it's early days and it's so competitive and advanced in the US. We are probably maybe a decade behind that. And we are definitely planning to be the company that leads that disruption from like Norway to Italy to Russia to Ireland and eventually outside of Europe as well. I'd love to hear now, coming full circle, you talked in the beginning about being an investor and then joining the company. Talk to us a little bit about the actual crowdfund experience. Are there rules where there's like a minimum accreditation there? Or can you invest like 100 pounds? How much did you raise? How many people? All that good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. It's actually one of those fantastic things I discovered when I moved here to the UK, to London. I actually did not realize there was a sophisticated crowdfunding, equity crowdfunding market. Because when you say crowdfunding in most other markets, particularly in the US, I think you might associate that with like Kickstarter. And that's a completely different thing. Crowdfunding for equity is definitely advanced in the UK. And there are two main platforms. One is Crowdcube. The other one is Cedars. In fact, they recently tried to merge. They tried to become the one and same company. And I think the competition authority in the UK did not approve that. But it's two very meaningful players in the market who are doing amazing things. As a customer, as an investor, you sign up on the platform. You actually have to go through some level of certification. You have to go through the risk disclaimers. You have to acknowledge that you know what you are doing. It's basically sort of a suitability test where you have to indicate that, yeah, you understand that you might lose all of your money and most startups don't work out and all that sort of stuff. So these platforms make sure you don't go in there blindly. And typically what you can do is invest like as little as 10 pounds, which is like maybe 14 US dollars. So that's a very low amount. And we see very various kind of like levels of investment. We did six crowdfunding to date. We are going to do a seven, by the way, in wow. September. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. This time we are going to make it Europe-wide. So it's been very UK-focused. But this time around, when we do it, we are going to make sure that people in Sweden, Germany, France, all these people have access to it and know about it and all that. But yeah, the entry barrier is not very high, that £10 is not particularly high amount. And there have been various outcomes for investors. These are startups, so there have been busts. There have been companies that did not work out. And the media, of course, as it usually does, it picks up those stories and wrangles every drop of horrifying stories out of it as much as possible. And there have been great outcomes. So my original investment in Monzo and Revolut, they went incredibly well. My original investment in free trade went incredibly well. And we actually minted literal millionaires, people who invested in the first crowdfunding round. I think there were maybe five of them whose share of holding because they invested a big enough amount. It became a million pound or more. Well, how much have you guys raised in aggregate? In aggregate, I believe we raised, in the most recent crowdfunding, we raised 35 million pounds and before that, 24. So wow. around 55, 60 million pounds altogether. That's awesome. And I may have slightly missed it, but you said that you don't have to have a minimum net worth. You just got to kind of go through like a online or educational process. Exactly. You don't have to have a minimum net worth. You 
have to certify, you have to platforms make sure that you understand what you are getting into. Something I neglected to say, Matt, though, is the tax relief here in the UK. So there are two schemes, the seed enterprise investment scheme and the enterprise investment scheme. This is basically, a, I believe, 60 and 30% tax relief that you receive once you invest. So let's say you invest like 100 pounds in an EIS company, 30 pounds you can claim back once you do your self-assessment. These are government schemes that help startups. There's some similarities in the US and the we talk a lot about the QSBS rules here. Listeners, if you don't know it, Google it, investing in startups. And I think everything is trending in the right direction. For a long time, it was accredited only, but now you're starting to see a lot more of the crowdfunding rules go into place where people can invest the lower amounts. We've actually considered it. The max I think you can raise here is 5 million. But what was the main motivation for you guys? Was it more just you wanted to raise the money so you could build the business? Or how much of a role did having motivated stakeholders play in this? Because I love this concept of the customers becoming equity holders too. I think that's a really cool... Because we have, I think, almost 100,000 investors now. And I think it's what a great way to let people kind of play along in the whole ride. Yeah, what motivated us majorly, and that was a, what I think is a very good original decision from Adam Dotz, our, our CEO and founder, is kind of like the high quality investor base you can get. I mean, you can take money from VCs and they have certain terms and you are kind of stuck with those people. And there are great reasons. And we have them in our investor base now and we are really happy with them. It's just having the crowds, it sort of scales the impact you can make. It's partially marketing. Suddenly you gain a lot of people that will feel very passionate about your success. Sometimes in a way that's almost like unfair to other companies, they will favor you. Even if other companies have like a marginal better product, they place their belief and they put money in the company. And that brand advocacy is extremely valuable and very helpful. We are so thankful to have these people in our investor base. Also, very often, they are very interesting people with interesting skill sets. So what we did, we actually very often hired people who invested in free trade and they have various skills. It just really connects you with a large number of people and that has lots of various benefits. So that was the original thinking behind that decision to start creating that community you can really rely on. And I think a lot of companies talk about community these days. They talk a good game, but really like the best way to create it is to make them co-owners of your company. That's the most powerful way. And then they are ridiculously incentivized to spread the word, advocate the product and give you feedback and advice as well. What we see as well are our toughest reviewers or our investors and community members. They are definitely upset if they don't like a feature. It's sometimes really um, tough conversations we have to manage in our community forum, but we are thankful for it. The only way to become a really world-class company is, is having those sort of high expectations that somebody who is like really incentivized and really motivated for free trade can give you. So there are lots of benefits of it. I'd like to see more of that, this sort of stakeholder capitalism to get people invested in the right way. Obviously, not every investment will work out. And in the startup world, probably most won't work out. But I think the concept of the framing, which is investing in businesses, is a nice complement to the crazy day-to-day, hour-to-hour, minute-minute goings on in the stock market. It lets you kind of sock away and have a long-term perspective, which is hard to do in this day and age. As you look back on your own personal career, what's been your most memorable investment? My most memorable investment? I mean... Free trade, definitely. I mean, we spent an episode on it, so I'm going to nominate another one. I invested quite early on, I mean, as early as I could in Tesla. And I invested an unreasonable amount, what seemed like an unreasonable amount at the time. And the reason I did that was I just really hated the media sort of response around Elon Musk, whatever he's doing type of stuff, whether that's like smoking a joint on the Joe Rogan experience or all that. That I literally remember listening to that episode of Joe Rogan. They get to that part and I busted out my smartphone and I put more money into my Tesla. (laughs) I knew there was going to be an outcry. I kind of, before I listened to the podcast, I saw the news site and all that. 
is the vision, right? It's the electrification of the future and having this really radical sort of mindset that you are not manufacturing hybrid vehicles all in on electrified vehicles. I just really like those radical companies that don't do trade-offs quite a lot and visionary CEOs. So yeah, I invested maybe to the tune of like $10,000, which was really a huge amount. It seemed like a huge amount based on the volatility of the stock price, but that was kind of, it was almost like an angry investment. I was like, I'm going to support this guy with as much money as I can. And it turned out to be an amazing investment. Yeah, he's been a world-class entrepreneur. That's for sure. You know, it's funny, the Joe Rogan podcast, I was uh, used to be a heavy listener, but as soon as he moved to Spotify, because I use a different app, I just have totally forgotten to uh, keep track with his episodes. And I don't know if that'll be a long-term situation or not, but it goes to show the kind of the importance of platform too. Some of these content creators that put up the gates or wall those down, be curious to know in retrospect if he would think that's a good idea or not. I don't know. Spotify app for me is not quite there yet. Yeah, I have my own pocket cast is what I use for app. And then since you moved to Spotify, I've not listened to one episode. I see. And then I always remember, oh, these are really great episodes, a really great show I should listen, but somehow I always get lost in the process. I never finish. Like I think I should pay for it or something. And yeah, platform, like you said. But yeah, who knows what happens in the future? Yeah. Victor, uh, people want to find out more what you're up to, what you guys are doing. Where do they go? Freetrade.io, that's the website. And community.freetrade.io, that's the online discussion board that we run, basically the home of the community. And we actually created a link for you, MEB, as well. I, I know most of your listeners are in the US, but freetrade.io slash MEB, M-E-B. So if anyone in the UK signs up to that link, they are going to get a free share. Oh. A little gift from you and I, basically. Awesome. Victor, thanks so much. I've had a blast chatting with you today. And hopefully, knock on wood, get to share a pint in person soon. That will be awesome. Definitely let me know when you are around in London. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.